Welcome to There Is More To Our Story podcast, brought to you by Salty Gathering, a non-profit research house, event space, magazine, and now podcast. It is here we get to share the voices of Indigenous leaders, medicine women, knowledge keepers, academics, researchers, activists and speakers contributing to this knowledge weaving space, gaining a better understanding of who we are, where we have come from and where we can go to next. You can join us deeper inside of our Soul Seed House. Here we are providing the most comprehensive library of deep feminine and earth-based knowledge, inviting people to become the researcher of their own stories, their own lineage and their own ancestry, radically shifting the academic model of researchers going to study other people as outsiders. You can also join us for one of our events. We have a traveling yearly gathering that moves to a new country and culture each time by invitation. We'll be returning in the fall of 2021. You can also join us for one of our events, our retreats here in Costa Rica called Medicine is Our Nature. All information will be shared first for Soul Seed House members, but keep checking back to the website for all updates. And if you'd like to become a supporter of this work, then consider joining our Patreon community for as little as a dollar a month. You can also support by one-time donation directly on the website or consider becoming a Patreon Bloom Fund member. It is here you get to contribute a substantial amount to a research focus theme country or culture a place where we need to bring greater awareness to and a place that is usually underfunded we're so incredibly honored and grateful for all the support we've gathered on this journey so far my name is hannah ruth dyson founder of salty gathering and i'm so excited to embark on this journey together with you let's begin Hello and welcome to episode 5. I am so excited to introduce this week's guest, Rian Eisler. She is the author of The Chalice and the Blade, The Real Wealth of Nations, Nurturing Our Humanity, Sacred Pleasure, The Power of Partnership, and Tomorrow's Children, just to name a few. And wow, her work has been so pivotal to our own here at Salty Gathering. Uh, the way Rian looks to the deep feminine, looks to this archaeological record, looks to the evidence of how we organize ourselves in egalitarian ways, in peaceful ways, how we honor the feminine, and how much this can shift our perspective of how we organize our society today, how we relate to our sexuality, how we connect in partnership, how we raise our children. It's huge. Her work... I believe, deserves way more recognition than um, I think it already has received. I think it's um, kind of ahead of its time. I'm so grateful she's been paving the path for us because coming to her work gave me such a deep sense of power of knowing this truth and the way I love to also navigate all these different subjects, looking at our economics, looking at our um, way we organize ourselves in systems, how we do business, and also to the personal, you know, looking at how we raise our children. I was lucky 
to record this interview back in November, right before I gave birth. So uh, a big special gratitude to Rian for saying yes right before I went into my postpartum nest. And again, I'm just yeah so excited for you to hear this episode. Please let us know what you think. Rate, review, subscribe, share with any friends or loved ones. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Enjoy. Oh, hi, Rian. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. It's like I mentioned before we hit record. It's such an honor because your books and particularly Chalice and the Blade were such important books along my journey to really um, yeah, ground this information that I was sort of passionately researching in my own way. And then to discover a voice as strong as yours was really, yeah, really profound for me. So thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you, Hannah. And I, I begin each of these episodes by just asking um, about your own ancestry and anything you would like to speak to that, because it's a big, it's a big question. Well, I think that the big question for us as humans is the question that I started to ask in my childhood as a child refugee from the Nazis with my parents, uh, whether really when we humans have so such a capacity for caring, for consciousness, for creativity, why has there been uh, so much insensitivity, uh, cruelty, uh, destructiveness? And is that really as we're told by, you know, very familiar stories all the way from, uh, original sin to selfish genes, that that's just human nature. Is that really true? Uh, and if not, what really are the alternatives? And eventually, um, my research uh, addressed that question, and I came out with a resounding yes, there is an alternative. But in order to understand it, and yes, in order to construct it, because that's the key here, um, it really requires uh, going outside of conventional thinking. Mm. And I always like to remind uh, myself and others that as Einstein said, we cannot solve problems with the same thinking that created them. So. Uh, my work is really, yes, about a very different way of looking at our past, our present, and the possibilities for our future. Mm, I love that so much. And I, it's amazing to me that you grew up really facing such like one of the you know most intense periods of time in our recent history. And to witness so much violence and then to go deeper into that is this really our core human truth because we know many of us grow up thinking like this doesn't feel quite right and I I can speak for myself I was constantly frustrated as a child that I didn't see myself within the histories or the stories that were being shared and um, we spoke a little bit about this before we hit record but I I'm still amazed when I discovered your book a few years into my, my own research journey into the past, Chalice and the Blade. And I just, I remember being so, I mean, touched that 
yes, this book exists. And then also equally frustrated and angry that this wasn't anywhere, not even a glimpse in my schooling or education. And still, if you look on the media, still to this day, it's very hard to see on the History Channel or, I mean, I haven't looked recently, but uh, from what I can tell, it still feels like this uh, male-dominated, violent, warlike history is constantly promoted and in the in the UK we're always talk to, talking about the monarchy and the way different wars were made to build this great nation and so forth so yeah I I would love to just know from your perspective now like uh, is it like still baffling that we haven't gone a little bit like opened up more into the history and and how you also um, began looking more into that history and finding those clues well, a different worldview is beginning to slowly, slowly uh, seep in, but it's it's still on the margins. Uh, certainly, uh, our so-called higher education uh, really has not caught up, and it takes the academy a long time to change, unfortunately, especially because it's so fragmented. But... Uh, I think that, look, uh, biology, uh, my last book, my latest book is called Nurturing Our Humanity, and it shows that neuroscience shows that actually, in a way, we're more wired for what I call partnership rather than domination relations, because the pleasure systems in our brains light up more when we share and care than when we win and dominate. So we've been told a lot of false, false stories. I mean, original sin, selfish genes, they're really the same story, aren't they? Uh, there's something wrong with us, we're bad, uh, purely selfish, violent, and so, we have to be rigidly controlled from the top, right? Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful story to justify domination systems. And it's time we really leave it behind, whether it's secular or religious. But uh, my work really shows something else that's very, very important, and which is that the studies of society, the social categories we have, like right, left, religious, secular, Eastern, Western, Northern, Southern, capitalist, socialist. If you really think about it, none of them, none of them tell us what kind of social system we need so that our capacities for caring, for consciousness, for creativity are supported rather than inhibited. And also, and this is fundamental uh, to everything, if you really think of these categories, they either marginalize or leave out the majority of humanity, women and children. And that is really crazy, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Because it makes it impossible to connect the dots. And that's what my work does. And as you said, you're quite right. The first book that um, introduced this different perspective 
on human society. And yes, uh, starting with our deep past was the chalice and the blade. And it showed that for millions of years, much longer than the few centuries that we call recorded history, you know, 5,000, 10,000 years, uh, actually uh, human society was more partnership oriented. And what that meant was uh, that it was more generally egalitarian, much more gender balanced. That's fundamental. Uh, children were not terrorized into submission. And uh, basically, uh, warfare uh, is only, and, 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 and I'll fast forward now, we know today, I mean, books that have been published uh, in the last decades from findings from archaeology, from anthropology, from DNA studies show that warfare is only five to 10,000 years old, a drop in the evolutionary bucket. So again, we've been told a completely false story, haven't we? And uh, I, I think of my work as sort of setting reality right side up. And yes, including the whole of humanity, uh, women, children of both genders and men. And then we have a more complete picture of not only our history uh, going way, way back, but also of a better understanding of our present and of the possibilities and what we need to do to build a better future. Mm, I love it so much. It's like... It, the thing that annoyed me about feminism growing up was like this attitude as if it was for the first time we were recognizing we could be equal. And it's just like baffling even to consider the whole of human history was, that's the way it was taught to me, was male dominated. And that was just the natural way. And then to yeah realize more and more that that is not the case. And I love how artfully I think you you dodge or you navigate out of the common criticisms that get put when we talk about a, a time of feminine reverence or honoring the goddess this this is like matriarchy patriarchy or even when you begin to talk about peace it's like this utopian thing and and very much like oh well we tried communism or we tried socialism and that doesn't work and I love how you're creating a whole new world vision because it's beyond any of those constructs. And it's so important to open that up just to have more narratives. Well, think of our language. You know, the only gender-specific categories it offers are either patriarchy or matriarchy. And they're really either fathers dominate or mothers dominate. They're two sides of a domination coin. There is no partnership alternative. And the reality is, no, we did not have matriarchies. We had more gender-balanced societies, which are partnership-oriented. And the whole, really, uh, notion that male, you know, the caveman cartoon, right? 
I mean, we show that to children uh, long before our brains are fully formed, much less our critical faculties. And what's the message? You know, he's got a weapon, a club in one hand. With the other hand, he's dragging a woman by the hair. So what's the message? Uh, you know, violence, injustice, male dominance. That's how it's always been since time immemorial. And by definition, then, uh, how it always has to be. That's just human nature. Again, completely false. Yeah. Because while there were not matriarchies, well, um, I'll give you an example. Uh, the most, um, uh, the largest um, early farming site, Neolithic site ever excavated is Chatalhuyak in Turkey. And uh, the archaeologist uh, Ian Hoddard, who until very recently uh, excavated that site, he wrote an article in the Scientific American uh, basically uh, saying, hey, uh, being born male or female really did not matter much in terms of status, in terms of the grave goods, in terms of the uh, nutrition, uh, as it did in later times. So these were societies in which there was more equal partnership between women and men. Uh, but not coincidentally, they were also societies where the size of houses, the grave goods indicate a more generally egalitarian society. Uh, and also, there are no signs of destruction through warfare in Chatalhuyak for a thousand years. In other words, more of the partnership configuration, not ideal, but violence, injustice, abuse, uh, doesn't have to be built into the system to maintain rankings of domination, be it man over man, man over woman, race over race, religion over religion, etc. Or, uh, and, 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 and really, if, if you fast forward to modern times, what you realize is that all the progressive social movements of the last 300 years have challenged one thing, the same thing, a tradition of domination. So I'm suggesting that if we are to really understand uh, what is possible for us, we have to really leave behind the old categories. You know, linguistic psychologists tell us that the categories provided by a language channel our thinking so that it's very difficult, almost impossible, to really envision other alternatives. So I've had to coin different language, like the domination partnership social scale with domination on one end, partnership on the other, and each with a very different configuration. And depending on where a society falls on this scale, everything is different. Uh, 
including, yes, how we relate to ourselves, to one another, and to nature. And our whole spirituality is different. We don't, and our value system is different. Uh, we don't devalue uh, in partnership systems, women and domination systems have very rigid gender stereotypes. You know, a, a man being a real man is defined as not being like a woman, right? So caring, caregiving, nonviolence, the soft, the feminine are devalued. So we have to unpack that, our hidden system of gendered values. Um, so you're quite right, Hannah. It is a completely different view uh, that is beginning to emerge. We have launched a campaign uh, to make partnerism mainstream. Mm. And that is what we need. Yes, absolutely. And I, it's as important as it is for the female psyche and female soul, it is for the male psyche. Because I still remember several years into my research, um, my partner just one night letting me know this deep sadness he had for the fact that man had been responsible for so much violence and how it's something that is innate that he like they have to men have to overcome for the future. And I was like trying to really like break through to him like it's not part of your innate psyche it's not part of your innate nature and the fact that you have that wound is so um devastating i think also for the men in society definitely but i mean men you know for millennia in domination oriented societies you know the first uh let's say 10,000 to 5 uh, you know to 5,000 years men have have had to give their lives because some guy on top wanted more real estate. I mean, and men, you see, domination systems really distort the humanity of both women and men and everyone in between, I should say. And nature. And nature, oh my God. But, but consider, you know, I mean, in terms of gender stereotypes, men they do get emotions. They get anger and contempt, right? Those are the only ones appropriate for those who dominate, right? Uh, but they don't get what is human in, in men. Uh, caring, caregiving, sensitivity. So many men today are diapering babies, feeding babies. And, you know, they get neurochemical rewards of pleasure, endorphins, because we all do, female or male, not only when we are cared for, but when we care for others. And as for women, uh, part of our humanity, uh, assertiveness, leadership, that's not supposedly feminine. I mean, it's, it's all nonsense. And the movement towards more fluidity of gender roles, of uh, gender. That's part of the movement towards partnership. But unfortunately, the gender stereotypes are very, very persistent. So that transgender people who switch from being male to female very often just embrace that old 
sexualized, right? Gender stereotype, don't they? You know, the high heels, the makeup. Uh, I mean, it's almost a caricature. So we all have internalized this. We all have been taught this. Now the good news is how many of us are saying, wait a minute, this is nonsense. You know? I mean, let's find out what being human means for both women and men. And there are physical differences between the female and male form. But so, uh, men aren't born violence. Violence is learned. Uh, I mean, and if women are more predisposed to learn caring, which is also learned or not learned, um, not all women are. We all know very uncaring women, and we all know caring men. Absolutely. It's, it's an exciting time. It is, and I, I'm, exci- I, I'm so happy. I mean, we live in the jungle, a, a little bit removed from being able to buy things, for example, toys. So we have a son who's three years old and I can see he's completely fluid with his gender. He loves blue. He loves pink. He loves to take care and clean and cook. He loves helping. And then he also likes to sword fight and climb trees and I don't know, all the other stereotypical things. And it's been really beautiful to just watch through my own first child, this fluidity and this allowing him to just be who he is. And I think that that is the greatest wish for everyone. If we could expand the binary of gender, it also feels freeing, I think, for for each of us to express ourselves in the way that feels good (laughs) moment to moment. And I love, there's a quote um, I have from from Chalice and the Bade, both the mythical and archaeological evidence indicate that perhaps the most notable quality of the pre-dominator mind was its recognition of our oneness with all of nature, which lies at the heart of both Neolithic and Cretan worship of the goddess. Increasingly, the work of modern ecologists indicates that this earlier quality of mind in our time often associated with some types of Eastern spirituality was far advanced beyond today's environmentally destructive ideology. And I love that because, I mean, a lot of your your work with Chalice and the Blade and, and subsequent work has been rooted in European history, coming back to our indigenous roots also throughout Europe. And I think this is where people have craved that Buddhism or that Eastern philosophy or perhaps uh, Native American or, you know, worldly indigenous uh, tribes to come back to those of us who have European roots and understand this is also a huge part of our spirituality and sense of self and connection amongst all things. We don't necessarily need to go to a far, you know, across the world sense of spirituality to to belong here. Yeah. And that, I love uh, that you, uh, I mean, I always think, especially when I was writing uh, the Chalice and the Blade, and then Sacred Pleasure, which I don't know if you know the book, but I think you'd love it. Yes. Because it, uh, do you know it? Yes, I love it, yes. Uh, It's a very personal book for so many people because it really applies this template of either the configuration of the partnership or domination system uh, 
to sexuality and spirituality, uh, showing how once they were actually in the old mythos and the old story, they weren't rent asunder, you know? Mm -hmm. And so many of us really are, well, I mean, like our language, I mean, candles, flowers, music, wine, right? As I wrote in Sacred Pleasure, they, they, we think of romance, but also they're very prominent in our most sacred rites. And not only that, the word passion is a word for both, uh, you know, sexuality and romance, but it's also the word for mystical experience. And that unity was rent asunder, uh, really, but it remains, it, 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 it lingers, but it's hidden, isn't it? And so I think of so much of what's happening in our time as having very ancient roots, not being new, not being radical. And certainly it's not about going back to any, quote, good old days. I mean, it is really about understanding the configuration of a more just, less violent, uh, yes, better, healthier society, economy, and everything else, and earth, uh, as contrasted to what we are trying to leave behind. And it, it, I, people always tell me when they read my work that they have all of these aha moments, because things that seem disconnected, random, suddenly they become comprehensible, don't they? Absolutely. And it's, you're right, it's deeply personal. And that book uh, also so um, important because, well, one, even just knowing the amount of art centered around the vulva throughout <laughs> the earliest art and all across the world and how uh, important a symbol this has been throughout time. And for myself as a young woman growing up, in today's society, I've had to heal a lot of the ideas around my body, my sexuality and so on to come back into that sacred pleasure and it to be partly, you know, ceremonial connection to spirit. And it's that also when we heal something so deeply personal um, and relational between man and woman or any gender, but, you know, with partnership, then it allows us also begin to work perhaps in the greater world with the greater issues or the bigger things taking place with that strength that's really rooted in fundamentally who we are and how we are creating uh, life and <laughs> coming back to that. I, um, I would, I wonder if you could share a little bit of your, I, I heard you in another interview and I, I love just how you described uh, your realization of the, you know, the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam and Eve, uh, <laughs> just that there was more to that story and how you began to see it. Well, when I was a little girl, um, you know, I always wondered, because in the Bible it says, henceforth, right? Henceforth, woman will be subordinate to man. And I always wanted to know well, what was it like before the henceforth. And I also <laughs> couldn't understand why 
a woman would take advice from a snake, from a serpent, because we usually don't do that. We don't think of that. But nobody wanted to talk about that either. And then in the course of my research, uh, you know, really working with a larger deck, if you would, because if you think of how, you said it, how history, how our past, what's important, right, is taught to us, it leaves out women. I mean, I, I, I realized at a certain point in my life, and it was really, wow, uh, a shock, that in all my years of so-called higher education, there had been hardly anything by, about, or for people like me, women. And, but getting back to Adam and Eve and the serpent and the Garden of Eden. So in the course of my research, of course, well, for one thing, uh, it became very clear that this myth, which is so powerful, and it's really part, it is one of two origin stories in the Bible, because there's another one where Eve is not blamed for all of our woes, and um, Eve is not a second thought, right, coming out of a man's rib, but where both woman and men are created in the image of the divine. Uh, but the Adam and Eve story, of course, is a wonderful myth uh, that illustrates something that I write about in my work, re-missing, because it has some elements of the old uh, reality, if you will. It First of all, it takes place in a garden. Well, uh, one could say that the early uh, gardens were either the wild gardens of our foraging days or the first cultivated gardens of the early Neolithic or early farming era. Uh, but then there was a shift. Um, and by the way, um, the snake, I, I found out, was a very important symbol of oracular prophecy. And, and you see that not only in the so-called Minoan goddess or priestess figures, right, which have snakes coiled, you know, they're in an oracular trance with snakes coiled around their arms, but even in historic times, after the shift already, the Greek oracle of Delphi. What was that? It was a priestess called Pythonesses, Pythonesses, who worked with a python, with a snake. And they were the people that the statesmen, and by then it was all guys, came to for their oracular wisdom. So that part of the story suddenly made sense, you know, of course she would ask a snake, you know, for wisdom. What didn't make sense is that all of a sudden seeking wisdom, knowledge, is bad. That you can only <laughs> think, think, much less do what you're told by this male deity. 
So that's the remissing. So Eve becomes, instead of a priestess seeking oracular wisdom from a snake, right? She becomes the prototypical source of all our ills, just like Pandora, you know, Pandora's box. I mean, that's not the only myth. Mm -hmm. um, and this vilification, really, of it's very interesting because when you really think about it, if you you can't trust anyone in domination systems, you just can't. You know, and you see that today. You know, I mean, people who only see two alternatives, you either dominate or you're dominated, they lie, they kill, they distort reality. I mean, we see that writ large, certainly here in the United States right now, but you see it in Hitler's Germany, in uh, Khomeini's Iran, in the Taliban, it, it, you know, they can be religious, they can be secular. They all vilify women, don't they? I mean, they despise the softer feminine. You know, like Trump said, it's all about domination. It's all about winning. There is no partnership alternative. Well, implicit in that story is that there once was a partnership alternative because it tells us that there was a time, the henceforth, when woman and man lived in harmony with one another and with nature. And that is the partnership system. But if you ignore gender, if you ignore how we are taught to think of the two basic forms of humanity, then you can't see the whole picture, can you? And you, and, and you know, I mean, I just want to add that we've all been taught important, quote, knowledge and truth does not really include gender. I mean, think about it. So-called modern Western science came out about 600 years ago of an all-male, clerical, misogynist, celibate, culture, right? Uh, a, as the historian of science, David Noble writes, a world without no women, that's the title of his book. And I would add a world without children. And it's only 50 years ago that we've even had anything like women's studies, men's studies, gender studies, queer studies. And as for what we today know about how our brains develop, and which is the subject of my most recent book, uh, Nurturing Our Humanity, uh, that too is an, you know, an occasional neuroscience or psychology course. It should be part of sociology, political science, everything. Absolutely. I, I, um, I was telling you before we began recording, I, I went to study economics and then very quickly try to expand my degree because I was like, why am I studying something that I, I mean, it was good to understand um, exactly how wrong our, like the economic system was. And I really felt like I began to grasp it in a 
uh, great understanding. But I, I tried to stretch open my degree. So I began studying anthropology and women's studies. And one of the disheartening things um, when I came to study women's studies is that actually they had removed all of the, the female history or the female side of history because it was like too taboo it was like being criticized as there's still this like fantasy thing that women were trying to hold on to and I think this is a big question I always get asked with my work is why like why is that why are we against that and I think you have this amazing term like the dominator trance it's nearly like <laughs> we so we speed so conditioned from such a young age to believe in war and domination. It's um, and on also the roots of all of these subjects, not just medical science, but also <laughs> anthropology, history, archaeology, was from this masculine. Um, yeah, this. Yeah. Well, and I I think that. Um as I said, we've all inherited that, but there's, the academy is very difficult. I mean, you say for women's studies, where is the reward system? What it really amounts to is rewarding your sticking to the old canon, to the old story. And believe me, the rewards are very real and the punishments are very real. Absolutely. This is why it's so important that biology, a so-called hard science, you know, like neuroscience, for example, is now completely demolishing this old story of, uh, quote, human nature being somehow inherently, uh, you know, purely selfish. Uh, I mean, we get neurochemical rewards of pleasure when we're not purely selfish. Why would nature do that? I mean, as uh, the primatologist uh, uh, Franz de Waal wrote, uh, nature wouldn't be in the empathy business if there weren't a reason for it developing. Um, but uh, you spoke about um, economics, and I really want to say that our I wrote a book, as you know, The Real Wealth of Nations, and the subtitle is Creating a Caring Economics. And one of the central themes is that the conventional economic theories, capitalist, socialist, communist, they are really based on a very, very limited model of what economics comprises. They leave out the three life-sustaining economic sectors, the natural economy, the volunteer community economy, and the household economy as economically unproductive. You know, that, that's just reproductive is what both Smith and Marx called it. And that is crazy. And there's nothing in either capitalist or socialist theory about caring for nature. And of course, caring for people, that, quote, women's work, right, was supposed to be done for free in male-controlled households by women. So we've got a completely crazy system so that our most popular measure 
of so-called economic health actually includes activities that harm and take life, like making and selling cigarettes and the end, the resulting medical costs and funeral costs, they're all great for GDP. Oil spills, wonderful for GDP, you know, cleanup costs, lawsuits, but somehow, you know, it, GDP fails to include the work in those three life-sustaining sectors as productive uh, with the result that it doesn't even think of what I call intra-household economic distribution. But, you know, I mean, what happens, we have studies, for example, showing that, uh, well, in Brazil, for example, $1 in the hands of a mother was shown to be equivalent to $8 in the hands of a father in terms of child welfare. And it's not that men are bad, but in domination-oriented cultures, men are told that, hey, you know, they, in a monetized economy, they earn the money, they can use it on gambling, whoring, uh, smoking, whatever. Uh, whereas women are socialized, you know, to be the caregivers. And that's crazy. That is totally crazy. And I love the story you told about your partner, because the good news is men are beginning to see other possibilities. Interrupting this incredible episode just to let you know that the doors to our deep feminine soul journey are closing February 27th at midnight. So if you're listening to this episode on the day of release, that is tomorrow at midnight. And don't worry, if you're missing this window, you can join us in the summer. We'll be opening up our doors again then. And I can just speak for myself that I am so just overwhelmed by the beauty of this group so far, the willingness to go deep, to be vulnerable, to participate, to show up and to contribute. We're inviting everyone to contribute to the building of this deep feminine library that we are building that really spans across time and across cultures, giving us the most comprehensive understanding of who we are. And so this invitation to contribute helps us step outside of ourselves while we go deep into this soul journey. We're also actively sharing that through research or through artwork or through writing we're learning how we can also integrate all of this research into our lives and through these kind of conversations that you're listening to today that really can inspire us to make a change in the world and so the call the invitation is a big one um, but it's so beautiful so heartwarming just to feel this community to be navigating rites of passages together so we are preparing for our first rite of passage at spring equinox or autumn equinox if you're in the southern hemisphere so it's not too late to join you can catch up what we've shared so far and then we're digging deep into our preparation work now for that first rite of passage and you can find us at soulseagathering.com forward slash house we would love to have you join us and let's get back to the episode yeah, absolutely. And 
that that was a hard part of studying economics was the fact that we were meant to take emotions out of decision making but that is like purely psychopathic <laughs> sociopathic it's like it's it's completely and and what you've come to with your recent work with the neuroscience it explains so much why we have this insane mental health crisis uh, like vast amounts of depression stress anxiety suicide and um but you're right there is the, i mean through your work and just this whole movement that is emerging from the sidelines but hopefully more and more into the the mainstream current is this understanding that we are built to and we feel so much better to be connected to nature to be um in community to be in respect of one another and i could see that also from my internal household we've really uh both have this absolute amazing opportunity to kind of be very um fluid with our schedule so we are partners equally in child raising and and also making decisions around everything and that is such um a beautiful i think you know opportunity that i think we can all get back to also you know it's um very damaging the way we immediately have to give up our children to daycare to go back to work to remain productive to feed the system <laughs> that is harming our planet and then back to ourselves like really harming us well you know as long as care is devalued we're not going to have caring economic social policies and as long as women are devalued and we don't free ourselves from these ridiculous gender stereotypes that say you know men men do get emotions though you know they get anger and they get contempt which are appropriate for those who dominate what they aren't supposed to get are the quote soft emotions right like uh, empathy caring you know like trump has said you know that's weak and you're a loser i mean it's pathological really uh, and it doesn't help to say yeah we should all be more caring we have to unpack this hidden system of gendered values once we do then we begin to understand why is there in domination oriented uh, or partially domination oriented societies always money for prisons right well that's the domination stereotype of the punitive male head of household isn't it i'm going to punish you and there's always money for weapons for wars well that's another domination stereotype for men you know the hero is warrior is killer but somehow there isn't enough money for the soft for the stereotypical feminine for healthcare for childcare for paid parental leave and the irony is that in our post industrial knowledge service age when we know from neuroscience that what economists tell us is the most important capital for this new age high quality human capital they like to call it human capacity development flexible creative people resilient people who can work in teams rather than just taking orders or giving orders uh that that largely hinges 
on the quality of care and education children receive early on, on this so-called women's work. So yeah, we've got to put reality right side up, don't we? And of course, the conquest of nature is really a tradition of domination, isn't it? Just like the so-called divinely ordained right of kings once was, and it was challenged, uh, feminism challenges, another tradition of domination. Uh, yeah, men's so-called divinely ordained right to dominate, control the women and children in the, quote, castles of their homes, the anti-colonialism, abolitionists, uh, Black Lives Matter movements challenge another tradition of domination, uh, the so-called divinely ordained right of a, quote, superior race to rule over a, quote, inferior one. I mean, if we use this analytical lens, not only does a lot of what happened in our past begin to make sense, but we can also see what we need to do to build a better future, which is why I've introduced uh, really, and this is central to the Make Partnerism mainstream movement, to shift four fundamental cornerstones from domination to the partnership side. Starting with childhood, that's the first cornerstone for the reasons I gave, gender for the reasons I gave, economics, but going beyond both capitalism and socialism, that old argument between the two, it's, it really distracts us, doesn't it, from the underlying problem. And of course, story and language. Mm. Very, very important. And, and those are not the cornerstones that we hear about in the academy or in the conventional mainstream press yet yet, because it's really up to us to change that thinking. Well, thank you so much, yeah, for all of this, like, wide scope you've been able to cover between, and I think it's what we need to do today as well, is cross all these disciplines of thinking, of uh, all these subjects, of the way we understand or um, look at the world, and then, yes, expand these stories. It's a huge part behind this project we want to create really this multimedia platform of stories that shape a bigger wider perspective and narrative and uh, several like four years ago my work with history just began cross-sectioning more and more with indigenous people still alive today living in these ways and I started to realize this was a huge po component of storytelling that we needed more of to hear these voices particularly from the female leaders that exist in indigenous tribes still alive today and then uh, beyond that just the, this way of working with nature we have people living closest to the way we used to also in our ancestry and what an amazing um, place to look also for inspiration still today um, we have to think really that the old world view uh, is actually more realistic in terms of viewing nature as a great mother. You know, that's what the term Mother Earth comes from, uh, from whose womb all of life ensues uh, to return to it at death once again, like the cycles of vegetation, like the cycles of nature, 
to be reborn and that sex sex was in the old world view integral to that uh, really process and the elimination or the subordination uh, as in tantric yoga for example it's the subordination of the divine feminine she's still there but you know the focus is on the spiritual enlightenment of the guy right i mean which is crazy uh, she's just merely instrumental uh, that came with the domination system and it is not inevitable uh, what we consider divine uh, in many ways only reflects uh, a domination system doesn't it you know the power to dominate you know the chalice and the blade the title is really two views of power isn't it the the blade well that's power appropriate for domination systems the power to dominate to destroy to take life uh, ultimately whether it's in the family uh, in intimate relations or international relations it's maintained through fear of pain or pain isn't it i mean that's one of the themes in sacred pleasure as you know uh, whereas in partnership systems they can be held together more by the sharing of pleasure of course there is pain you know we get sick we die there are earthquakes but we don't have to create artificial pain artificial scarcity like domination economics does uh, you know it's it, it is possible and i think that what people tell me they find most useful in this work uh, is that it, it really shows that we have a, if you will, a human inclination towards partnership, but because our brains develop in interaction with our environments, which are culturally, of course, primarily as mediated through families, education, religion, politics, economics, uh, we really, uh, tend to adapt. We have a very flexible brain, which is both our strengths, but also the problem. But if we just focus on those four cornerstones and shift from, uh, well, from a highly authoritarian, male-dominated, highly punitive family, right, to a more partnership family where uh, caring is not really completely inextricably connected with coercion as it is in domination systems that we can free ourselves and that we can grow up i mean you said about your son and that's because you're parenting differently i mean the nations that have oriented modern nations that have oriented more to the partnership sides started with northern european nations like sweden finland norway not coincidentally the first laws against physical violence in child discipline came out of sweden a more partnership oriented society where yes women are 50 percent 40 to 50 percent of the national legislature and gender roles are much more fluid gender relations are more equal 
the first peace studies also came out of those societies. I mean, let's start thinking in terms of these two configurations and how we can shift these four cornerstones uh, so that we don't keep having regressions to mm. domination because that's what will continue to happen. Domination systems will continue to rebuild themselves on these four cornerstones, whether it was Hitler in Germany, Stalin in the former Soviet Union, Khomeini in Iran, the Taliban, ISIS, the so-called rightist fundamentalist alliance in the United States. It's domination fundamentalism in all cases, whether it's religious or secular. And we can change it. Thank you so much for speaking to that. And I, I want to be mindful of your time. So it's just one more question around um, the question I get most asked by my, my audience is um, what happened? Like, why did it go into this dominator sort of paradigm? And I think the important part of your work is also understanding what did happen to know that we can also change it back or, or change it again into the future. The one thing we know, there are many theories as to why, but we do know that the shift happened during a time of great disequilibrium. And I draw here from chaos theory, from nonlinear dynamics, from some of the new approaches to how social systems maintain themselves and change. And we know that during periods of extreme instability, there were climate changes, there were uh, mass migrations, invasions from the more arid parts of our globe into the more fertile ones, uh, there was a shift. Some people believe that the shift came with agriculture. I am not so sure about that because I think of early farming societies like Chatalhuyak, I think of the Minoan civilization of ancient Crete, not ideal, but more partnership oriented. The art, for example, is full of these amazingly self-possessed women. I mean, where did they come from? And their breasts are exposed, you know, the power to nurture life, uh, sexuality, oh my God, big, 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 to see it in both portraits of women and men. But for whatever the reason, it, we know one thing, it did happen during a time of disequilibrium. Now, the movements challenging traditions of domination uh, happened all through history, so-called recorded history, but it's over the past 300 years, as the industrial revolution gained steam, also a time of dislocation, disequilibrium, that you had the challenges. And now that challenge and that disequilibrium is proceeding at a tremendous speed as we shift from the industrial to the post-industrial technological age. This is a time, as the Chinese proverb has it, of crisis, but it's also a time of opportunity because it is clear. I mean, the COVID-19 pandemic showed this. Our old systems are, in, not only are they unjust, they're not resilient. They're not adaptive. I mean, we're destroying our natural life support systems. Uh, COVID itself is because of what we've done to nature, you know, and, and the encroachment into nature and the stress we've put on 
on, 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 on wildlife. Uh, we have to change. I mean, at a certain level of technological development, the domination system really uh, reaches its logical end, which is also, unfortunately, the logical end of our species. <laughs> so we have an opportunity, but we have to know what we have to do. So it's not only the short term. You know, yes, I mean, let's get governments, for goodness sakes, to stop supporting the fossil industry. Uh, let's, you know, the Black Lives Matter, let's really show that these in-group versus out-group thinking, whether it's racism in the U.S. or Shia versus Sunni or Sunni versus Shia in the Middle East, that it is not human nature, but it is something that develops in domination environments where children have to deflect their pain and their anger at those they depend on to the outgroups, right? Designated by some authority figure as being to blame. I mean, it's very complicated, but very simple in a way. We've inherited kind of a mess out of the domination system, starting in family relations, which affect how our brains develop, all the way to how we relate to nature. But, uh, you know, human cultures are human creations. We can change them. But I always come back, well, to Gandhi, who said, let's not mistake the habitual for the normal. We have to create a new, more caring, more truly just partnership normal. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much for your, your time with us today because, I mean, I want to ask so many more questions, but perhaps on a future time we will have an opportunity again. But, um, yeah, I love that in your recent work you've come to the neuroscience and, like, the way our brains work because I think this is fundamental, getting into our psyches, looking at how we view the world. And I think healing on a soul level is also fundamental to make these changes throughout society and, and so forth. And I want to point everyone to the Center of Partnership Studies. And I know you have a course that's come out. And I think you bringing partnership to mainstream is a huge, huge offering to our world right now. So I want to really, yeah, encourage everyone to go there and yes, and offer you anything else you want to share as the last final words. I want to invite you and everyone who is watching, who is listening uh, to become but we all need to be agents for transformation, uh, shifting from domination to partnership. And there are a lot of resources uh, for, for, for parenting. We have a, um, go to centerforpartnership.org. You can find the caring and connected uh, parenting guide in both English and Spanish for free. Uh, there are so many resources. Go to partnerism.org. Uh, read my books. I mean, uh, Nurturing Our Humanity came out last year with Oxford University Press. Um, my co-author, uh, Douglas Fry, is probably the world's authority on foraging societies. He calls them the original partnership societies. Yeah, mm -hmm. the Academy is beginning to somewhat change slowly, accelerate that movement and support 
partnership support our development of new metrics, our new social wealth economic index, which unlike GDP, shows the economic value of caring for people starting at birth and caring for nature. Uh, it can be done. And this time is the opportunity for doing it. So I want to thank you. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you, Hannah, and also hearing about how you are, in a sense, living a more partnerism, more partnership-oriented life, and how fulfilling it is. The happiness surveys, by the way, show that the nations that have moved more towards the partnership sides uh, are happier. Absolutely. I can't, I can just see it through my partner's eye, like through him, like he would not be as happy if he was not as involved or as part of our life in terms of just raising our child and, and uh, birthing our new one. And, you know, we're very much connected. And, and that final piece, I just want to say as well, it's um, been a huge part for me to really allow my feminine qualities to also um, receive monetary value. That's been a big part of my personal journey. Absolutely. We need paid parental leave. You see, the, the nations that have moved more to the partnership side, like the uh, nations I just mentioned, they pioneered caring policies like generous paid parental leave for both parents, mothers and fathers, uh, universal health care, high quality human child care, and yes, well-paid and well-trained people are doing this, uh, elder care with dignity, and yes, caring for our natural environment. Uh, these, these are interconnected, and we can do it, and it makes for a better quality of life for everyone. Now, the good news is there is movement in this direction. The COVID-19 uh, pandemic showed that the nations that have these policies in, in place, there was less suffering of people and I, when so much of the economy, uh, you know, the market economy had to shut down because there was support for caring. And I want to, yeah, close by also saying, like, I, I heard you in another talk also say it's not also the best thing to do for ourselves and for the world. It also can have economic benefit, <laughs> huge returns. Huge economic benefits. I mean, economists keep telling us that the most important, they like to call it high quality human capital, the most important capital for the post-industrial era is what they call high quality human capital. What do they mean? Human capacity development, a more flexible, resilient people, able to work in teams, people who don't go into denial about climate change, you know, as part of their rigidity, which is formed in domination families, by the way, to a large extent. Uh, you know, we can shift and there are there's a movement in this direction but we've lacked this unified frame and i think this is very important that we do the short-term work you know as i said i mean this is lunatic to support 
with government subsidies like Trump has done, uh, you know, uh, industries that actually are destroying our life-sustaining natural habitat. We have to do these things and work for more racial and gender, et cetera, justice, but we have to also do the long-term work because otherwise we will continue to have the domination system rebuild itself on those four foundations. Mm. So we can do it. Yes. And I invite all of you, I mean, start by just changing the conversation. Change the worldview. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rian. That was amazing. Thank you, Hannah. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking with you. Mm. And I wish you all and your family all the very, very best. Thank you so much. And yes, and I'm just happy to know you and promote your work even more so in the world in any small or big way. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you received a lot from this conversation or knowledge share, consider supporting us on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. This can be found at patreon.com forward slash soulseedgathering. You can also make a one-time donation directly on our website, soulseedgathering.com. It is here you can also become a Soul Seed House member and receive these conversations and interviews first alongside bonus content, transcripts and this incredible growing library of deep feminine earth-based cultural knowledge. You can also become a Patreon Bloom Fund member. This allows you to support a country or culture or theme or focus that is needing greater awareness and attention in the world. We are entirely independently funded so far, so thank you for every single amount offered to us. It really means so much. And a special thanks to our post-production by Jack Palmer for Alma Chrome. And special thanks to Temple of the Way of Light for offering us this recording by Olivia Aravello, the incredible Shibibo medicine woman, no longer with us, sharing her Ikoro, her medicine song. This was weaved into an incredible track by Jack Palmer. So again, thank you and sending so much love to wherever you are in the world. Thank you.